I'd like to say I have a big announcement today. We get excited about big announcements, right? Do we? Oh, I see Paul's already excited. Um, Okay, so that was a little fib. I don't actually have a big announcement, but I do want to point out that aren't all announcements kind of big announcements, right? Have you ever heard someone stand up, like Steve Jobs when he's releasing a new iPhone? He doesn't stand up and say, I have a moderately okay announcement to make today. So get excited about that, right? They're always big announcements. Um, it, you don't get the, the moderately sized announcements. They just, they just don't happen. Um, but when people make announcements, they often want the right person to make that announcement. Uh, and so that's why you have Elspeth who, you know, makes announcements and does things on Sunday morning and leads the service because not everyone can do that, you know? Some people aren't comfortable doing that. But we have people who can make announcements and do a good job. And so today we're actually looking uh, at one of those. But before we get going, I have a little, uh, I have a little game for us to play. I want to, uh, I want to ask if you, um, you guys are familiar with the idea of celebrity spokesmen, right? Celebrity spokespeople. Uh, and so I want to ask you, uh, I'm going to give you a name and I want to see if you know what, who they represent or what company they're a spokesperson for, all right? So we're going to start with Kevin Bacon. Anybody? Kevin Bacon? Okay, EE. Yeah, looky there. That's it. You got that one. That one is easy. How about, and I don't even know if I'm going to say this right, Holly Willoughby? Anybody? MNS. Okay. All the ladies knew that one. All right. Holly's must-haves. All right. How about George Clooney? This one's a little. Nespresso. Hey, awesome. Very good. There's George handsome man. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, now this one might throw you off because this person has probably been a celebrity spokesperson for lots of things, but how about David Beckham? Maybe. Pepsi. Maybe. Quite a few things, I think. But did anybody know that he represented, uh, he had his own line of fish sticks called <laughs> Go 3, uh, 10 Omega 3 Fish Fingers? Uh, that is not a bad Jenga game he's playing. That, those are fish fingers. Um, and then the next one I'm going to show you, I'm not going to name the person. I'm going to show you the product because I'm pretty sure it's one of the most popular people on the face of the planet. Anybody? Michael, Michael Jordan. Jordan. Yes, exactly. Those are Jordans. Some of you know. Okay. All right. That's all right. Uh, most cultures around the world know uh, what Jordans are. Today we're going to look at possibly the greatest spokesman ever, at least up into his time. Uh, And so we're going to be looking at John the Baptist, as we've already heard in our passage today. Uh, John was not only a spokesman, but he was a herald for King Jesus. He was a herald of the king. Uh, Jesus will himself in scripture tell us that John is the greatest human born of women, of any woman ever. John is the greatest. And so those are pretty big words especially coming from Jesus. We know and can trust everything he says. <coughs> Excuse me. And so if Jesus says John is great, uh, then I think we can, we can trust those words, right? Um, so far in Matthew, as we've looked, we've been in this series for a few weeks now. Matthew chapter 1, uh, we see the royal character of Jesus' birth. Let me see what's next. Yeah, there we go. Matthew chapter 1 shows us the royal character of his birth. Matthew 2 showed us the royal circumstances uh, of his birth. So you have the homage of the Magi and the hatred of Herod. Um, But then Matthew 3, we're going to be looking at the royal herald of the king. 
and that is John the Baptist. So there's a theme here. Jesus is king. Matthew's trying to get across to us and present to us this idea that Jesus is the king. Oh, thanks. That's my, that's my girl again. Look at that. Coming to the rescue. Probably the most dangerous place I can set that. Um, all it does make me have to cough. <coughs> Which side did I? Did I not cover the mic? Okay. Um, right. So Matthew is presenting to us that Jesus is uh, the king. And so I want you to keep your Bibles open. If you don't have them open, turn back with me again to Matthew chapter 3, because we're going to kind of walk through these first 12 verses. Uh, we'll look at it, and as we go through, we're going to read the whole thing again. So uh, stick with me. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. And here's kind of the big, uh, big thought for the morning that I want us to, to get from this passage. The king and the kingdom have come. So turn to him and find true life. This is, this is your one sentence big idea from our passage today. The king and the kingdom have come, so turn to him and find true life. And we're going to see this uh, kind of play out in three different stages in this passage. One is going to be the announcement of the king. Two will be responses to the king. And three will be the way of the king. I'll say that one more time in case you're writing in your awesome little pink books. One, the announcement of the king, two, responses to the king, and three, the way of the king. So first, let's look at the announcement of the king, verses one through four. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Seems like a little bit of a random thought in the midst of that. Um, but John was a bit of an abnormal dude, all right? Uh, what, we, what we're seeing here, if we think back uh, just the last, even, let's say, uh, four chapters of Scripture, which is... A little bit of a curveball because you're thinking, wait, we're only in chapter 3. Uh, but if you back up to Malachi, the very end of Malachi, uh, there's a 400-year pause in Scripture. So the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence. And so along comes, uh, and the very end of Malachi, for that matter, is a prophecy about King Jesus and about John coming to tell about King Jesus. And so then you see this pause and you see Matthew 1 and 2 telling us about the royal nature of Jesus and his birth and, uh, and the responses that we see in chapter 2. Uh, and then chapter 3, there's actually about a 30-year pause between the end of chapter 2 of Matthew and the beginning of chapter 3. So we don't know much about the childhood of Jesus. People have speculated. They've written fiction along the way, um, trying to fill in that gap. I don't know why we, we feel like we have to do that uh, as people. But there's this gap there. And Luke gives us one little story of, of Jesus when he was uh, about 12 years old in the temple uh, and having some interaction with the, uh, the elite, the intelligentsia of the day. Um, and, but other than that, we don't see a lot uh, from when Jesus was just a small child and visited by the Magi up until this point where now John the Baptist is coming and it, it's the inauguration of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so it's about 30 years 
that have gone by. And we have this guy, John, who comes out as the messenger, and he's a bit odd, right? He's, I mean, he's wearing camel hair. Like, even back then, this was not a normal thing to wear camel hair. He had a leather belt holding on his camel hair, uh, and then he had a lunchbox full of locusts and honey. Like, probably going to get some attention, but definitely unique. Isaiah 40, verse 3, is a, is a passage where we see specifically uh, John the Baptist prophesied about in Isaiah. Isaiah, sorry. Try, trips me up every time. Thanks, Marcus. So, so Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3, is this, it's what we see quoted here in chapter 3 of Matthew. Um, John's role was to be a herald for the king. John is telling us to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him because the king is at hand. It's a big announcement, and it, it, it's exciting to a lot of people. But I just want you to think for a minute, right? If King Charles III was coming to your house, he wouldn't just show up. Someone, in fact, many someones would come before him. They would prepare the way. They would let you know he's coming, all right? And they would clear the way uh, for him to come. Could you imagine seeing the king's motorcade waiting at a stoplight while a beat-up 2003 Mondeo uh, crosses the intersection and they just all sit and wait for that, right? That would be absurd, okay? In my mind, Mr. Bean is driving that Ford Mondeo, okay? Like, I mean, it's just that silly and absurd of a notion to think about. Uh, that's not what happens, right? The way is cleared for the king. No, he doesn't share the road with others, right? That would certainly be absurd. So I, I want to show you this guy. I'm guessing none of you probably know who he is, but his name is Graham. Uh, and this is the guy who would probably lose his job if a 2003 Ford Mondeo interrupted the King's motorcade. Um, this is the guy who's the senior travel and logistics officer. So he's kind of the one who uh, at least sets the travel plans. I don't know if he's probably not the security guy that, you know, uh, would actually blaze the trail, but he's the one that prepares it all, gets it ready, lets them know he's coming. Um, this is what Mr. Graham does. He's a herald for the king. So John is the king's herald, uh, but Jesus is unlike every other king. In this particular case, uh, the announcement that John's making is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus isn't the kind of king that, um, that waits for us to come to him. He pursues us. Jesus is a king that comes to us. And so John's coming to the people. He's coming to the Jews in that day to say, look, your king has come uh, to you. God is always the one who comes to us. In fact, we see in the birth narratives of Jesus that his, he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He, he's not a king who's far off, who lets us approach him if he grants us permission. But he's the king who comes and pursues us, chases after us. And John's announcement is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent is, uh, it's one of these words that sometimes people like to put on a big sign and scream at you. Uh, it, it's, it's a word that just simply means a change of one's mind. It means to, to, to be going, thinking, living in one direction and to turn and change 
and go in the other direction. It carries with it the idea of confession, but it's much more than that. It carries with it the idea of remorse, but it's more than that. Repentance means change. It means turning away from anything else and turning to Jesus. Matthew here uses the language of kingdom of heaven. And what you'll find as you look at the other gospels is they use the phrase kingdom of God. And so um, don't be thrown off by that. They're the same kingdom. They mean the same thing. They're, they're synonymous phrases. But kingdom of heaven, some speculate Matthew writing to a Jewish audience might not have wanted to use the name of God and say God. You know, the Jews were very careful about the way they use the word for God and how they said it and how they used it. Um, so that's some speculation as to why Matthew may have chosen to say kingdom of heaven. Um, but it means the same thing. It's kind of like saying, um, if you hear in the news, like they may say, hey, number 10 Downing Street issued a statement today, right? Like we know that that's the prime minister or his office, right? Or her office in this case, sorry. It's been a recent change. Um, so that, it's the same thing, right? Um, where I'm from, they would say the White House says such and such. And we know, again, that that comes from the president. Um, and so that's what this is, the kingdom of heaven, because heaven is God's kingdom. It's his domain, and no one else rules there uh, except our God. So saying the kingdom of heaven now is at hand is the same as saying the king has come. The king is now at hand. This would have been good news to those Jews who've been waiting 400 years to hear from God. They've been waiting, knowing we haven't heard prophecy, we haven't, God isn't speaking to us, right? They, they weren't on speaking terms with their own God, and it wasn't his fault, it was theirs. Um, but they're hearing now, and so um, it's good news for those Jews who've been waiting. Now, it's not necessarily good for those who aren't willing to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight paths for him. It's not necessarily good news. John's message of the king's arrival called for a response. He said, repent. So let's think about and look at the responses to the king. Verse 5 through verse 10, it says, It says, people went out, I'm going to take my glasses off, I'm so old. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So he's gathering a crowd, right? This strange guy wearing camel skin, eating locusts and honey, which by the way, all of that was odd back then, okay? You might think like, wow, biblical days were weird. Um, they weren't that weird. John was just, you know, extra weird. Um, but, but the response that, uh, again, the response that he got was masses of people coming out. They were coming out from all over, all around the area. They were coming out to hear his message. Um, repent doesn't tend to be one of the more popular messages, right? Uh, if, if I just sat here and told you all day that you need to repent, which by the way, we all do often, right? The life of a Christian should be marked by repentance, but repentance is, you know, it's, it's almost a harsh word. It's not a very, you know, let, go out here on the street and tell the people watching the, the, the half marathon, hey, you guys need to repent, right? And just see how popular that is. Probably 
uh, not very popular. But for whatever reason, again, the move of God's spirit, I'm going to speculate, um, people were coming out. They were coming out to hear uh, what was happening. So maybe the news of the king's arrival was the big draw, but people were coming out and they were confessing their sins and being baptized by him in the Jordan River. So not only were they coming out and hearing this message, seeing the strange guy and the message that he had, but they were responding to it with confession. They were responding to it by being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, baptism wasn't very common back then, okay? This is kind of the beginning of baptism as we know it. Uh, and this is even a precursor to the baptism that, that we know. We'll talk about that some in just a second. But baptism wasn't very common. So for the Jews, they had some ritualistic washings that they would do. Um, but even those weren't super common. Uh, and then if a Gentile became a Jew, wanted to convert to Judaism, there was a, a type of baptism. They didn't necessarily call it that, but they would, baptism just meant to dip. And so they would go into the water. So they would dip people under the water uh, when they wanted. And that was, again, ceremonial. It was to picture cleansing uh, as they converted from, from whatever they were as a Gentile into Judaism. But John's was a baptism of repentance. It's a picture of dying to sin and to self, turning away from any other kingdom and turning to Jesus as king. And so that's that idea of repentance. It's turning away from anything else and turning uh, to Jesus as king. But then verses 7 through 10, here come these Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he being John, when he saw them coming to where he was and to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So here's John. He's gathering crowds of people, and he sees this specific group, well, two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, showing up. Now, these guys were political rivals of one another, actually. The Pharisees didn't like the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't like the Pharisees. But in those days, this whole region would have seen them as the morally goody two-shoes. They were the ones that kept the law. They were the ones that were, they were the best people in culture, right? Um, and, and I use that phrase with tongue firmly in my cheek. Um, but that's how they were seen. And people looked at them and knew like, okay, they keep the rules. They're, they're the good ones, right? And they're showing up. And what does John say to them? He calls them children of a snake, right? You brood of vipers. Now, I don't know if it comes to mind for you, but it certainly would have come to mind for the Jews in that day. Snakes were associated with Satan. Snakes were associated with the creation story. Uh, and, and so uh, he's, in essence, this is one of probably the most offensive things John could say to them, right? Uh, you know, we know pigs weren't necessarily looked at in that day as being some cute little animal that you'd want to have as a pet, which we often do today. Uh, potbelly pigs are so cute. You could just look them up. People have them as pets. It's amazing. But in those days, pigs were very dirty, unclean things. He could have called them pigs. He could have called them some other things, but he called them a brood of vipers. So it was serious, right? This, these were fighting words. And people all of a sudden paid attention. Why is he calling 
the Pharisees' brood of vipers. I mean, these are the good people, right? These are the ones that he's not going to get away with this, right? Surely they were, they were thinking these things. Um, they were seen as the most moral people of their day. And, and so when John calls them this, um, it's got to be insulting to them. They were thinking to themselves like, hey, we're the ones that are religiously moral. We're the ones that are good. We're the ones that are the sons of Abraham. You know, they were, they were trusting in their outward religious activity. They were trusting in their heritage as sons of Abraham. And these aren't bad things. It's not bad to have outward moral activity, right? We want to be people who do the right thing. We want to be people who make good decisions and right decisions. And it's great to understand our heritage, right? But trusting in these things for our salvation is where we go wrong. And that's what they were doing. These things that we do, these outward moral activities, they have to flow out of salvation because they will never lead us to salvation. And that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were expecting. If they keep all the rules, God will approve of them. And John was upset at them because not only were they saying that, but we see elsewhere in scripture that Jesus condemns the Pharisees and Sadducees as a group because he says, you, you're putting weights on other people that you don't even keep yourself. You say that you keep these laws, you say that you do these things, you make everyone else do it, but you don't really do it either. And John knew this about them as well. We talk about repenting of our sins, but these Pharisees and Sadducees needed to repent of their good works. And I know sometimes I need to repent of my good works because when I'm trusting in those good works as the means of salvation or what it is that makes me acceptable to God, I am, I'm really, I'm spurning the cross. I'm, I'm looking at the cross saying that's not needed because I can do this. I got this on my own. I don't know, I'm guessing all of us in the room at times need to repent uh, of our good works. If you and I could earn our way to God through good works, then why would God need to come in the flesh and die in our place? If we can save ourselves, then why do we need a savior? So a question for you today before we move on is this, what are you trusting in? The Pharisees were trusting in their good works. They were trusting in their, uh, their lineage, their, their heritage. I don't know if you trust in your good works. I don't know if you trust in your family heritage. Maybe you're trusting in your outward morality. Maybe you're looking at everyone you work with and you're saying, well, I'm morally better than they are, so I'm okay. Maybe you're trusting in church attendance. Maybe you're trusting in the fact that you serve in the church. What is it you're trusting in? We cannot put our faith in any of those things. Only the finished work of Christ on the cross can save us. It's his death, his burial, and resurrection that pays the penalty for our sins and gives us the right standing before God. Verse eight, then he moves on and he tells the Pharisees, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And basically this is saying, look, if you've repented, if you've been changed, if you are now living for King Jesus, then you'll be changed, you'll be different. There'll be evidence. If you're changed, if you're new in Christ, then it will show. There will be evidence. So what is the evidence of your salvation? You don't have to answer that. It's a rhetorical question. Verses nine and 10. Verses nine and 10 say, and do not think you, you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. They're out in the wilderness. John's pointing at stones, rocks, 
very dead, inanimate objects and saying God can raise up his people from these stones. So don't think that because you're Abraham's offspring that that means anything for you anymore. Then he says this, the ax is already at the foot of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees that their tree doesn't bear fruit because their faith is in their own works and in their heritage. But those trees are cut down and thrown into the fire. Like, again, these are strong words from John to the Pharisees. Now, it's easy for us to look at scenarios like this and say, well, I'd probably have been in that group of people that were confessing their sins being baptized, right? I wouldn't have been the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But I think when we stop and look at it, we all act like Pharisees and Sadducees at times. No matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, there's this natural bent in our flesh to still at times want our kingdom to come and our will to be done. So don't be so quick uh, to just sit and wag our fingers at these Pharisees and Sadducees. What is your response to the message of John the Baptist, the King's Herald? Because this will be Jesus's message to us as well, right? John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see later Jesus in his own ministry says, repent and be baptized. Then we see later with Peter, right? And in his sermon at Pentecost and elsewhere, we see him say, repent and believe, repent and be baptized. Repent. It's a message we'll see throughout the entire New Testament. So it's a message that all of us need to, to deal with. And I would ask today, what is your response to this message? So we've seen the announcement of the king. We've, we've seen responses to the king. And now we'll finish with the way of the king. Verses 11 and 12. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was incredibly popular. Like I said, the crowds were coming out. The Pharisees and Sadducees kind of came out afterwards. They made their like, you know, fashionably late arrival to the party, but already masses of people were coming out. And if you're John, if I'm John, crowds of people coming out, there's got to be, that's got to be intoxicating in some way, right? Like you can see, unfortunately, why uh, our, the, the, the body of Christ in the world today is sometimes plagued with celebrity pastors, right? Because when you have a great message and people are interested in it, you begin to think there's something about you. But John understood his assignment, all right? John understood the assignment. It wasn't for John to make much of himself, John embraced humility. He knew his role was to point to the one who was greater than him, greater than all. In fact, in John, uh, John chapter 3, verse 30, it's one of those easy-to-memorize verses. John says, John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. This is what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus. And it's really what we should all be saying about Jesus, that he must become greater, but I must become less. John chooses to place himself under the king. This was not crushing for John. 
but it was good. It was for John's good. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Jews who sought to find salvation uh, in keeping the law were carrying a heavy burden. These words of Jesus in in Matthew 11, he's telling all of the Jews, he's saying, look, this heavy burden that you carry around, the law that you've got on you, that you know you can't keep, it's heavy, it's weighing you down. The law was too perfect for them to keep, and yet they tried. They had laws that existed to keep them from breaking other laws. This is how heavy it had gotten. Maybe you aren't Jewish, but aren't you tired? Don't we get tired? I get tired. I get tired of constantly thinking like, well, what are people going to think of me if I do this or if I say this, right? I, I get tired of please. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser, right? That's, that's always been a struggle for me is I want to keep people happy. And so I don't first think, what's the right thing to do that God wants me to do? It's not natural for me to think that first. I often think, what do people want me to do, right? And that becomes heavy because there's only one God. But there's a lot of people, and everybody wants different things. And so being a people pleaser can be tiring. I know how tiring it can be to live up to everyone else's expectations, not to mention my own expectations. I try to be good enough in so many ways, and it just gets exhausting. Got to earn the right salary, maybe, right? Got to have the right job, the right relationship, the right views on issues, the right way to look. It just overwhelms, and it sucks the life out of us. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John's baptism is only an outward baptism. Jesus tells us about, or John tells us about Jesus' coming baptism of spirit and of fire. So John's telling us, hey, look, the king's here, so turn around from whatever you're looking at and look to Jesus, look to the king. Turn your back on your good works. Turn your back on your heritage. Again, Jesus himself makes some bold statements where he says, unless you hate your mother, father, sister, brother, you cannot be my disciple." And again, it's a figure of speech there. We know from the rest of scripture that God doesn't desire that we hate our family members, but in comparison to our love for Jesus and our comparison to our love for God, it it, it should look like hate for everything else. And when we love God well, we will love those around us well. But if we seek to love people more, if we seek to love people first, the love of God will never follow. So John tells us about Jesus' coming baptism of spirit and of fire. John's water baptism will be superseded by Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And and so if you're thinking to yourself, well, like, I've been baptized, but I was never baptized in John's baptism. Well, you you don't need that. That was just for a very short period of time as John was pointing people to Jesus. And what we see when we come to faith in Christ is we receive the Holy Spirit which is what seals us and saves us in the midst of the fire. And so Jesus' baptism is a spiritual one. It's not just an outward sign of the repentance that has happened, but it becomes something inward for us. 
If you read Romans 6, you want to learn a little more about baptism. Romans 6 is a great chapter to read. Uh, Paul gives a great explanation of it. And the word baptize just means to dip. Uh, and so Paul talks in Romans 6 about being dipped into Christ, right? And the idea there is that uh, once we're in Christ, then kind of Christ consumes and covers and uh, envelops all of us. Uh, and so being dipped into Christ, being baptized into Christ is when we receive uh, the Holy Spirit. And that's what seals us in, in the fire. Uh, the last time I preached to you guys, uh, I talked about 2 Peter chapter 3. And in that, we looked at the coming day of the Lord. And that, that, uh, that image of fire is, is there in that passage as well. Uh, it's, it's a time of judgment. It's a time when uh, the old things will be burned up and the new heaven and the new earth will come. And that's what we as believers look forward to. We talked about fire either being a judgment or a purification or both. Um, and when you think about it, Noah wasn't saved from the flood. He was saved through the flood. He still had to deal with the flood, right? Um, Daniel wasn't saved from the lion's den. He still spent the night in there, right? But he was saved from the lion's den, right? And saved through it, rather. He, he, he still had to deal with it, but he was saved through it. Our response to Jesus' baptism divides everyone into one of two groups. How we look at the baptism of Jesus and what Jesus offers us in, in salvation as the king comes to us, pursues us, wants this relationship with us. Our response to his baptism divides us into two groups that we see here in this passage divides us into the wheat and the chaff. Now, in those days, as they would harvest the wheat, it had chaff mixed in with it, right? You didn't want the chaff. You wanted the wheat. The wheat is what you could use. It was what was helpful. It was what became bread. But the chaff was just, it was rubbish. It was, it was something that needed to be gotten rid of, needed to be burned. And so they would take the wheat and the chaff because as they harvested the wheat, there was chaff in there. They would take all of that and they had what was called a winnowing fork. And they would, uh, they would throw, they would use that fork, they would just throw the wheat up into the air as the wind blew, and the chaff would blow away. The chaff would blow further and probably create a little pile in the distance, but the wheat, being heavier, would fall back to the ground. And so just throwing it up into the air and the wind blowing is what would separate the wheat and the chaff. And so again, you see that picture of struggle or judgment or whatever it may be that kind of separates uh, and, and just like the refiner's fire, right? When, when you take fire to gold, the impurities come out called dross and they are, they're burned away. And you can separate the, the dross from the gold, from the pure gold uh, with other metals as well as you, as you fire it, as you burn it. And so only what is real in us, only what is eternal in us will survive when that day comes. In those days, um, they would have understood that imagery of the wheat and the chaff. And they would have been asking themselves, am I wheat or am I chaff? What's going to happen to me when the wind blows? What's going to happen to me when the fire comes, when the judgment comes? When faced with Jesus, we cannot remain neutral. We either receive him or reject him as king. We all have to deal with that question. There were no unbaptized believers in the New Testament with one exception the thief on the cross. And he had a pretty good excuse because he died just minutes later, all right? Pretty, pretty good excuse. 
We can even see in Romans 6 that I mentioned earlier that, that Paul was writing to a church he had not met, didn't, didn't know the, the people there, but he didn't think for a moment that any believers there would be unbaptized. The way he spoke, there was an assumption that as believers in Rome, they were baptized. It was just understood. His assumption is that all believers in Rome had been baptized because believers get baptized. As we move on in just a moment to take the Lord's Supper together, I want to ask a few questions this morning. One, have you ever repented? Not confessed, not felt remorse for your sin. Have you repented? Have you ever turned from trusting in yourself and your own works and trusted in, the, in Jesus and his work on the cross for you? And again, we need to repent often. It's something that should mark the life of a believer. It should continually mark our lives. But if, you're, if you've never repented of your sin and turned to Christ as your Savior, then you cannot know salvation. So have you ever repented? And secondly, have you ever been baptized as a result of the new life you have in Christ? Have you ever been dipped under the water as a sign of your death to sin and your new life in Christ alone? If you want help with either one of those things, if you have questions about that, I'm happy to talk with you. I know that your missional community leaders that might be in the room or might not be in the room, because some of them, I think, ran a race today, um, <laughs> they'd love to talk with you about that. So if you're, if, if you're curious about baptism, if you're curious about repentance and, and you're, you're asking yourself the question, have I ever repented, not just confessed a sin or not just felt remorse for it, but actually turned from what I've been trusting in to trust in Jesus. Either of those questions, please, after the service today, I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to stick around. I mean, if you got tons of questions, we'll grab lunch together, like whatever it takes. If you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone, I want to invite you um, to remember that with us today. And so every Sunday, I didn't put one up here. Greg's always so prepared. We have the little, uh... <laughs> hey, thanks. Good toss. Yeah. We have uh, the cup, the bread, and, and the juice there. The bread represents the broken body of Christ. 